All right, testing. Let's see, I've got audio on my end. What about on your end, Okay. Nick? Yeah, I can hear everything just fine. Okay. All right. So my name's Christian Haynes, and I'm here for Gamers with Glasses, a website that's about to launch later this month, September 2020. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined uh, by Jake Elliott, who is one of the members of Cardboard Computer, who are probably best known for Kentucky Route Zero, a game that I would say was released in 2020, but that would be inaccurate. So we'll say it was released between 2013 and 2020. Um, so uh, Jake, why don't you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm Jake Elliott, and um, I'm actually uh, one of three people who are who comprise Cardboard Computer. Um, the other two are Tomas Kamensi and Ben Babbitt. And um, we, yeah, we've made one, well, we sort of, we made a bunch of video games, but we kind of released them all under one title. So, so we've, um, you know, we've been working on this, um, or we were, we were working on this game, Kentucky Route Zero, for, for like almost 10 years, or I think about nine, nine years overall. Um, and uh, before that, we were kind of, we were like uh, all living in Chicago, and that's how we met each other. Uh, we all went to the same school. We went to the Art Institute of Chicago. And um, so I, I met Tomas there kind of like around 2005 or 2006 or something. Um, and we worked together with some other sort of friends of ours in Chicago on a bunch of like, um, we were doing like software art. So it was like mostly stuff that was in a web browser, uh, for example. Uh, Tomas and I worked on a project that was called Hyper Yarn that was this like chat room with a with some uh, it was like a performative chat room that was sort of just hosted for one event and um, we had some uh, we had ourselves and some local artists and then some people like uh, uh, other sort of like net art people from online come and just basically dump it had uh, it was like an IRC chat room people were just dumping noise and images and weird text art and stuff like that into it. And then we had this interface around. So it was kind of work like that that, that we were doing that was um, usually had a performance component to it or something about sort of being alive or in real time, um, uh, but was was also, you know, digital and, and usually usually based, rooted in like software development as a kind of practice. It's something that Tomas and I have, have been into for a long time, writing, writing software for you know, mostly um, just for art making. Um, Although we also, Tomas and I both also have worked um, doing web development and stuff like that uh, as our day jobs sort of while we were working on games later. Uh, and then Ben, we, we met a little bit later, but he, he also went to the Art Institute and he's, um, Ben is the musician on the, um, he, he did the music and all the sound design, I should say also on Kentucky Route Zero. And, um, and you know, we're still kind of working together. So we're working on a new project now. Um, and it's the same kind of arrangement where so Tomas does the art and graphics programming and stuff. And then I'm doing writing and, and a lot of programming. And then uh, Ben is music and sound design. And then we're all kind of like talking through this sort of design and concept and storytelling stuff in the games is sort of, um, those are kind of the the heart of the collaboration or something. We're mostly kind of, you know, we're, we're fairly siloed in the types of work that we do. There's a pretty clear division of labor. Uh, so it's even, even uh, years ago when we were all living in Chicago, um, we still wouldn't really meet up in person that often. I mean, we were friends, so we were hanging out sometimes, so we wouldn't really work together. 
uh, very often you know just be like corresponding over email or eventually slack and stuff like that so um, yeah that's kind of always been our our, our workflow together so I was gonna ask uh, you're mm -hmm. in Kentucky right and then yeah. Tomas and Ben are also separate so you're mostly communicating online working online sharing code sharing art yeah exactly yeah uh, Tomas is in Chicago and Ben's in Los Angeles yes yeah, so we're all spread out <clears throat> This is, I guess that's how game development is mostly happening these days. I right? think so, yeah, especially <laughs> at this scale, yeah. You guys were just ahead of the curve. <laughs> oh yeah, these days, right, everybody's doing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> that's great. Um, and you got to a lot of what I wanted to talk about, uh, which is, you know, a little bit how you got into game development. Maybe, <laughs> you know, before we get right into Kentucky Route Zero, we could talk a little bit about uh, do you see a distinction between software art and making Kentucky Route Zero? Was there a moment where you said, okay, this is different from some of the other projects that we've done. Um, this is one larger and two, you know, it's going to have a marketing surrounding it as a quote unquote hmm. indie game. Was there a transition or did it just kind of grow into that? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's a good question. So it, it, um, it was a, a deliberate sort of uh, uh, step away from what we had been working on into a new form for, for Tomas and I. And we, we had wanted to make games um, together for a while. And, and um, we had actually, we, I guess we had made, worked together um, along with some other friends of ours on some stuff that was really like very game-like. Uh, for example, Tomas and I and our friend John Cates made this sort of weird text adventure <clears throat> that we, um, it was like kind of a, it was it was called Side Quest, and it was kind of a remix of Colossal Cave Adventure, which is this old adventure game from the 70s, uh, along with some text that we had pulled from different sources, like um, some old books about uh, the idea of the hollow earth, that mm -hmm. you know there's people living inside the earth, and it's, it's like hollowed out and stuff. Uh, that, and then mixed with some descriptions and text from some of the sort of institutions that the uh, people who, that the guy who, who programmed Colossal Cave Adventure was working in. Um, so it was this kind of, um, you know, not super fun, but kind of like weird, noisy, surreal, cut up kind of um, text adventure. And that was something that the three of us, Thomas, John and I made for a gallery show. Uh, so it, you know, it was on a projector in a, in a gallery and you know, it was the computer. It wasn't like we, you, you couldn't play it at home or anything. Uh, and, uh, but, but yeah, there was definitely a, a step, you know, Thomas and I were thinking it would be, it would be great to be able to make games you know that that people could that we could distribute digitally and that you know would be played in this sort of like not in a gallery but in this sort of like mass media kind of arrangement um and we yeah we made a sort of attempt Tomas and I to build a game like that I think the context of this was it was probably like 2008 and nine somewhere in there maybe a little bit earlier and um it was kind of this time where uh, there was a surge of uh, visible indie, successful sort of indie game um, development projects going on. So that, that was that was a, a context for it. We were like, okay, this is a, a way of making work and a way of relating to your audience being an indie game developer. Um, it was uh, it, it wasn't something that we ex you know expected to uh, turn into our job necessarily, but it was it was a way of working. We you know we had day jobs for um, the first few years of. Of Kentucky Road Series development, <clears throat> um, and, the, and now you know our day job is working on the game. So, uh, so yeah, there, there there was a shift there. I think 
also I was really looking at flash games at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I kind of started making games in earnest, uh, you know, making and sharing games that I made uh, was using some some flash tools to build games. And I, I, the idea that I had there was that I would make games and sell them to a portal. So that was the kind of, that was the, the economy of being a really small indie game developer then was like uh, sites like Armor Games and Congregate at a certain point and um, I'm trying to remember the other big ones, but Newgrounds and stuff like that. So they would pay uh, a flash game developer basically to, um, to insert their own ads into your flash game and, and, and to sort of put their banner on it so that when, um, because it's funny, like they, they didn't really try to have the game exclusively on their site because they knew that it was just gonna get copied to all these other like sort of gray uh, flash game aggregation sites. They knew it was just gonna get ripped off. So what they really, the business model was to like make sure that wherever your game ended up, um, that it was this, it was Armor Games' banner that popped up and it had Armor Games getting the ad revenue and stuff. So it was a kind of like interesting take on uh, like shareware software. It was like meant to spread, but it, it, was, it was sort of a, a market driven, you know, a spread idea of spreading. Um, but that, I couldn't, I couldn't really make that work for me. I, I made a few flash games, but nobody was interested in buying them for their portal and the feedback that I got was that they had too much text and they were too boring and too slow and stuff and I, I, it didn't occur to me at the time that that would be a problem for a flash game portal although it's obviously not there. Um, so it, I ended up um, having more luck just with these little small flash games that I was making I ended up having better luck sort of um, distributing them as downloads and stuff and it, it seemed to and not trying to coexist not trying to live on this um, weird noisy flash portal ecosystem. Uh, and that was, you know, that, yeah, that, that was where we started. Um, I, after making a couple flash games, I, I was able to kind of figure out the basic ideas, you know, like the basic process of translating an idea or a story into a piece of software, like a video game. Um, you know, it's not like a science or anything, but just like going through the process a few times, it's like you start to understand how to reason about, you know, how to, how to do that translation. And, um, and yeah, then Kentucky Route Zero, when Tomas and I, um, we came back to this, you know, we decided to work together, on, try to work together on a game again. But this time we had a little bit more um, experience and a better understanding of like how to see that project through from start to finish. Although um, we thought we pitched it on Kickstarter and thought we'll, we'll, do, we'll do something really big for us at the time, which was like to spend a whole year making a video game. It seemed like a really big time investment. And so, um, but it ended up, being, you know, that's not a very big time investment for making a game. That's a you know, fairly small time investment if you, depending on the scope of what you're trying to get out there. So um, the game ended up being a lot, um, it kind of grew both in just through our own kind of interests. You know, we, once we started working on it, we found interesting new ideas and, and kind of, it kind of grew, but also um, it was just a really a much more complicated project than, than, you know, we had thought it could be at the time when we started on it. So it became this, you know, nine year project. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a relatively short period between act one and act two, right? Like you guys yeah. kind of really just went breakneck speed, maybe four mm -hmm. months or something and got act yeah. two out and then sort of reassessed things and said, okay, we need to like take yeah. our time. Yeah. you know and make this like a sustainable effort yeah absolutely yeah i mean that was um yeah it took so it took us like about two years i think a year and a half two years to get um to get act one out maybe two years 
uh, and then we we just we thought that since we had, since we had done that, it should be easy then to generalize and to make it. But it, but you know that wasn't true. It was actually uh, became clear to us that just like making the um, making the content for the game was the part that took a long time, not figuring out the technical problems or something. So that was a lesson that we learned there. And, and um, when we but we we still. Uh, you know, I guess another kind of important context for that moment is like around 2011 or something is like the um, the Telltale games were really, really big and really successful. And this was like a model that everybody I think was looking at and saying, okay, this is a way to do story games that are, you know, um, really uh, sort of very ambitious in a lot of ways and like um, have, a, have a good scale. They feel like a season of television or something and, and you know, we can <clears throat> publish them in this way. So we, we tried to follow their model as closely as we could. Um, and, but part of their model was that they were really trying to get to um, this really short release time. There's like this really short turnaround between episodes um, because that's, well, I don't know, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know why, ex how exactly they came to that, but um, it, it was something that we tried to, you know, we were seeing like, okay, it looks like about three months is like what the audience is asking for. We can do, you know, they're saying we can handle three months between episodes. And so we really tried to hit that. Um, and we ended up being four or five months just to get one episode done. And it like almost killed us, especially Tomas. It was just uh, the, the, with the 3D modeling and animation stuff is just like way too much, just physical, you know, labor on, on Blender all day doing that stuff. And it really, um, it, you know, hurt his wrist and stuff. And, uh, and was just, yeah, just not a good way to be working. So, so we did, yeah, we deliberately kind of slowed things down at that point. Um, and, um, you know, it, I think it was really good for the work um, and it was really good for us. And, and it, it's, it's I, you know, we wouldn't still be here as a team if, if, that was, if we hadn't done that. Um, but it was also really good for the work because it gave us, gave the work more time to breathe. And, and that, that taught us a lot, I think about, um, uh, yeah, just about making sure that the, the work has space to, you know, for you to kind of reflect on it, even just sort of ambiently reflecting on it as you're going about the rest of your life you know you just need to give things time i think is something that we right. we sort of extrapolated from that experience now i'm trying to sort of imagine how your days would have changed so you're breaking your backs in this like three to mm -hmm. four month window between act one and act two you're supported mm -hmm. by the kickstarter at that point um and then you release uh, episodically, and then you shift to a little bit slower of a pace. Are you working day jobs at the same time? Are you working? Yeah. Are you coding? It, it was in was it Unity is the game engine that you guys use? Yeah, Unity. Mm -hmm. You coding in C sharp or JavaScript mm -hmm. in the evening. You know, Tomas is on Blender, and then you're working a day job doing web development, or what it look like? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It was it was like that for. Uh... Yeah, for most of the development of Act One, I think at the, there was enough revenue from sales of Act One once it actually did come out that we were able to um, leave our jobs at some point during the process of, I think it was after Act Two, I think is when we both actually quit our jobs. So yeah, I think for most of Act Two, we were both working full-time and, and uh, that was pretty, yeah, pretty intense. Um, and where was most of that revenue coming from? I know sales of Act One, but what was yeah. the platform you were most successful with selling it? Um, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it did pretty well, even just, we were just selling it directly, right. I say directly, I mean, there was still some kind of, I don't even remember the name of it, we were using some, some payment collector app then, right. um, and that, and that was pretty good, I, it was, it was a different, 
it was a different moment as far as just like how much was out there and stuff. And uh, I think it's, I mean, I'm really happy about this moment and all the great work that's out there, but it was, it was a little bit easier then to, to stand out. Um, so that, that worked in our favor. And at the time. We also got- a million things on Steam. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, well, yeah, Steam especially. So that's uh, right, right when act one came out, um, there was also the, the independent games festival, uh, you know, like nominations or something were around that time. And we, we are, uh, CARES was was nominated. And at that time, Steam didn't have, this was before Steam Greenlight was a thing. And, and back then this was just like, the only way to get into Steam was if you had a relationship or, or a, some sort of, you know, rep that you knew there or something like that. You, I, I had submitted games to uh, to Steam before. It was just like this email address that you tried. You know, I tried to send some of my like little flash games to them. And it's just this email address and they're just like, we will not respond to you. Like if, if we don't want it, we will not respond to you. And uh, it, was, it was, so it's hard, but, but one of the, um, a part of the prize for being nominated for the IGF was was like that you get to have your game on Steam, and that was huge. And and it was like it was early in this. I mean, I think that 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 arrangement had been in place for only about a year when when we benefited from it. And so there was yeah, it was just like a really open um, marketplace in, in a way. It was uh, so so that was was very much to our benefit. But again, I'm I'm much happier with the situation as it is now, where we have like a much more diverse, you know, body of, of work to play. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting too when we think about like indie games, which we don't always think about indie games in terms of like art, but when we do, it's almost like mm-hmm. there's this independent art system that exists within a much larger like capital yeah. in uh, mm. marketplace for games, right? And part yeah. of it is a challenge to be found, but part of it also just weirdly different funding layers on top of one another yeah yeah well absolutely but you know to be fair this is also the case in the art world you know when we were working in in these weird kind of galleries that were you know really people's apartments or or like really a club or a bar or something like that and doing basically new media art as as a noise show or something it was like you know felt like okay we well, you know, yeah, we would use like we would show work in museums or galleries or in this context, but we were like totally, you know, not part of this big, uh, you know, money laundering scheme that is the art world. You know, we were like right. not connected to this sort of. Uh, so, it, yeah, but video, yeah, video games has um, has a similar situation where you know they're they're sort of like at once this fascinating art form and also uh, the propaganda arm of the military, and it's just like you know and all these other things. Yeah. yeah, back to that uh, original table <laughs> tennis, you know, just showing yeah, it off yeah. at a defense lab on Long Island, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's just like that Absolutely. where video games came from. So true, yeah. Um, all right, uh, so we've covered a lot of ground, but we've only sort of <laughs> dented Kentucky Route Zero, and we oh, should get yeah. into that. So I'll, I'll sure. read a really short description of that from, you know, one of the websites you guys have had that's uh, mm. on Kentucky Route Zero, and then maybe AdLib off of that, and then ask you some questions about that. Okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, Kentucky Route Zero, as you guys describe it as a magical realist adventure game about a secret highway running through the caves beneath Kentucky and the mysterious folks who travel it. And then I would just add to that, it's also a game about debt, poverty, mm-hmm. bad luck, deindustrialized <laughs> wastelands, maybe utopia. Um, it's a mixture of experimental art projects, but it also seems a kind of like ode and like really sort of lively uh 
sort of version of a point and click and text adventure game. Um, mm. So I guess, you know, one of the things I thought, ask you one of the obvious questions that we can do from there is, do you feel, you know, looking back now or even just at the beginning that there was a kind of central theme that you and Tomas wanted to tackle and then Ben wanted to tackle and, mm -hmm. or a central subject. And do you feel like that's what you accomplished or like you accomplished something else? Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, we were pretty focused, I think on, um, on, on debt as a, as a subject, as a kind of unifying theme or, or motif or something in the game. Um, but, and, and that, I, that came really from that moment where we were conceptualizing and, and making the game. It was just like something that, um, you, you know, there was, there was this like economic, this like recession and, and people were losing their houses and things were like really bad. And it was like, you couldn't, we were in Chicago then and you could, it, you could see it was visible in Chicago. And um, uh, so it was a, it was a sort of like, a, I felt at that time, like, like debt and and the sort of predatory nature of the institutions of debt and the sort of just like um uh, just the unfairness of the way that debt functions you know that it's like everybody has to pay their debts except for people who owe a lot of money they can renegotiate their debt you know it's just like this there's this just yeah it felt like it really felt like a um a uh, a, a way of you a sort of narrative for what was happening then that, that made a lot of sense or, or a way of understanding what was happening then that made a lot of sense to us. And also that was, um, you know, so this the story of this, the, the, some of the characters um, that you meet in the game, a lot of their stories kind of were, you know, came from that, like trying to think of the, this motif of, of debt and, and, um, and uh, not just as an idea, but like as an experience, like, you know, what it, what it feels like and, and how are, you know, what other things in your life that feel that way. Um, regrets, uh, addiction, and, and um, you know, missed opportunities, and um, you know, also just like <clears throat> some some of the characters who just sort of live with um, live with the legacies of these terrible things that have that have happened to them, or something um, that they're like this, like the character Ezra in the game, who's this uh, child who's been abandoned uh, by his family. You know, he's he's got this history, this personal history that he's kind of carrying around with him that he just like really doesn't know what to do with, you know. And that's a um, that's a, a feeling like that's in a sort of my emotional read on on uh, uh, the, the way it feels to be in debt, especially also like uh, the like there's a lot of stuff in the game about uh, where about this this uh, the power company you know that is sort of like trying to to collect on the debts and and how just remote and inaccessible they are and you just you really can't like get a handhold on what am I even supposed to be doing here now that was that was also sort of um, something that came from my experience of like trying to deal with uh, debt collectors and stuff just in a very practical way it's just like I don't know who you are or why you're calling me or, you know, I'm trying to piece together this mystery of this money that I owed at one point that now whoever I owed the money to originally is not in the picture anymore. They've been made whole by some other process. That's like totally uh, just this, it, it's just such a surreal experience, you know, to have something that you've done. Like I, you know, had to go to the doctor for something and there's this, this debt that originated from my doctor's visit but it gets decoupled from what really happened there, which is that I was sick and I had to go to the doctor and then it just becomes its own thing. And then 
you know, by the time these debt collectors are coming after me about it, like they don't know why I was at the doctor or what that was going on. It's just like, uh, it, it is this sort of, um, I think that's where some of the supernatural qualities of the game really come from. It's just like, we're having this, yeah, we're, we're sort of, um, the experience feels supernatural or something. Um, but you were working on this game for such a long period of time, I feel like all three of us really grew through the game uh, as as artists and as people, and um, so we, it covers a lot of other territory too. Because just because we went through a lot um, over those nine years, like everybody else that lived through them did, um, you know, there's stuff that gets introduced only late in the game. Um, you know, there's like like some of the um, anti-immigrant tension that comes up in. Uh, in Act Five and, and leading up to Act Five, this is stuff that was uh, came from us responding to things that were happening in in the moment, you know, around when Trump was elected, mm -hmm. and just you know, so that it, it's it is also like as a work of art made over a period of time, it is also a, a sort of a, what uh, you can see it as us sort of processing what was happening in that moment too, um, you know, and that's something that you can't really plan for, I don't think, and uh, yeah. I mean, one of the, it seemed to me one of the strengths of the structure of the game is it had a kind of elastic quality, the episodic quality doesn't just give you time to mull over things. It also gives mm -hmm. you space to add things, space to sort yeah. of, if not turn on a dime, then at the very least, you know, say, okay, we need a different angle on this, right? Yeah. And then you literally, I mean, one of the things I found fascinating in the game as I was replaying it uh, before our interview uh, was just your use of circles and circular structures. Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about the little bit of work I did in Unity and trying to sort of think about the camera uh, <laughs> navigation there and the way in which you track the camera there. And just you're, you've got a game that's instead of being a linear structure where you're progressing forward and upward, you're going in circles, mm -hmm. but the circles, depending which direction you go, literally on the zero might bring you to a different place. And so right, yeah. it feels like a way in which you're able to respond to history, even as you're going in circles or because you're going in circles. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 really nice. And I also like that, um, you know, you that once you release an episode, you can't go back and change it really. I mean, you, you probably could, but we decided not to. Um, and, you know, so there's some that, you see this in television too, like where they'll have like a an episode in a in season two that sort of retroactively changes something in season one for thematic or continuity reasons or whatever, but they can't go back and reshoot the, the episode in season one. So you have this sort of history in the work, you know, of the the development of the perspective or of the context of you know whatever. And so yeah, that's in in um, Kirzi also. I mean, I think I changed maybe one or two words in Act One just. Uh, you know, out of for, I don't know, I don't remember what reasons, but I really, we really tried not to mess with things that we'd already published. Um, and yeah. So, so, you know, there's a lot we could talk about, but I thought maybe just talking a little bit about Kentucky and how mm -hmm. Zero, you know, the highway ended up in Kentucky. I know I've read yeah. a little bit about that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And also a little bit about the challenge of writing 
about a place like Kentucky that all too often, you know, the only kinds of representations of that area of the country are in, you know, shows like Justified or you get mm. like Hillbilly Elegy, that kind of like Appalachia that can very quickly turn into stereotypes. So how do yeah. you avoid doing that? What's your relationship to the place, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I live here now. I wasn't, I didn't grow up here. Uh, I only moved here about six years ago, like while we were working on the game. But um, the reason that I moved here is because my wife is from here and her, her family is all here. So we we moved down here when um, we had kids to like, be closer to her family. So um, so we, before that, even before I, um, before we even started working on the game, we, we were coming down to Kentucky a lot and um, yeah, driving on this especially on the stretch of highway that, that is in the game that goes between Elizabethtown and uh, Nashville. So this is where we have family in both of those cities. So we were driving um, a lot in that and we, we passed by Mammoth Cave. Um, and, you know, I think it, it like the, uh, the setting for the game kind of started with that cave, but um, which is interesting to us for a lot of reasons. One of which is the sort of game historical um, connection that it has, like I mentioned to Colossal Cave Adventure. Um, but, you know, it's also just like a, um, I think to answer your question about avoiding this, this sort of stereotypes, I think, uh, you know, I, th I think that a lot of that came from just the, just being here and, and just, it's like, it's about, I mean, this is like where my wife and her family are from. And I'm just like with, you know, with people here all the time, not, it wasn't like a version of the, um, it, it wasn't that this place, the selection of, of uh, a site for the game you know, it didn't come from media, it came from, you know, being, being here. So, um, so I think that helped. And, and we were aware, uh, you know, obviously of these uh, stereotypes and we and wanted to kind of push back against them. So, you know, wanted to represent the, the reality of, of the state, which is that there are not, you know, there are artists here, not everybody is a coal miner, there are, there are coal miners here, but, you know, it's like, they're like, a, oh, there's also, it's sort of late in the game, uh, this, this book that uh, came out that was really uh, important, all three of us read it and, we're, and talked about it a lot, was um, uh, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia by Elizabeth Catt, which is a, a sort of, um, in part, a, a response to hillbillyology that you mentioned. And um, even before she published that book, she, we had been reading her writing for a few years about that subject, uh, because I think that she wrote this book also in response to this flood of sort of like um, around the uh, when Trump was elected, like to this flood of, excuse me, articles about Trump country and stuff like that. So this sort of like another kind of like really narrow view of like who the people that live here are and what they're doing. Um, so definitely it was, it, you know, clear to us midway through the project also that there was this, this, this new sort of emerging narrative about the the place that, that we needed to kind of push back against. Um, not that that's like a new narrative per se, but like this this new kind of importance of Appalachia when people are you know talking about what happened with with the Trump with Trump's election or his last election. Um, so uh, yeah. So what else can I tell you about Kentucky? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. No, that's great. Uh, you know, mm. one of the things I love about the game is that you know as you put it there are so many different types of people that aren't mm, just yeah. there but they're mixing you know and you pick yeah, up yeah. people as you go you pick up shannon right away right um and you end with shannon but you don't just mm -hmm. have shannon you have emily you have 
you know, so many different characters. I did a running mm -hmm. list of all the characters <laughs> the second time around. Um, and, you know, by the time you get to Pueblo de Nada, you know, you're, you've got maybe 20, 30 characters that, yeah. you know, if you don't feel like you know every single one of them, you feel like you have some sense of their character. And even <laughs> the kind of sort of post-game, post-Act 5 sequence where you're back with uh, Harry mm -hmm. and Carrington, uh, and Harry's complaining mm -hmm. about people not paying their bills, their tabs at the bar, and Carrington's yeah. talking about how nobody showed up for his play, which is right. both like, a, I don't know, as somebody who cares about art, both like a wonderful and painful thing to hear <laughs> him talk about. And the actors yeah. didn't show up, but you know, something happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I really... I love that. And, uh, you know, maybe another subject we could talk about uh, that really struck me the second time going through the game um, was there's a passion, it seems to me, in this game for dated media technologies, for analog yeah. media, for everything from VCRs to tape recorders and theremins. And mm -hmm. I found myself thinking of this essay by this German critic, Walter Benjamin, uh, the storyteller, where he talks about like the beauty of the medium only finally reveals itself as it's passing out of existence. Uh, like, mm -hmm. And he's talking mm -hmm. about 19th century styles of storytelling, yeah. <laughs> but you can already hear him talking about like, what if the novel's dead? What if poetry's yeah. dead? Um, yeah. I mean, he had his moments. And so just... <laughs> What brought you to, I mean, everything from mainframes, like that moment with the yeah. mainframe in a cave, which I imagine is not unrelated to, you know, the work that was done uh, to map Mammoth Cave, which then became, mm. Col you know, uh, Colossus Cave Adventure, and then just kept right. going, so. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I think, um, yeah, it's really true that, that the, yeah, that's a funny uh, observation about about media. I mean, there's another thing that I've heard people say is, you know, that um, a piece of piece of software. I think it was about software that it, it sort of gets more. It only becomes sort of socially interesting once it's no longer technologically interesting. Is another one that I've heard. But it's just like there's something about the newness, the novelty of tech that sort of like really kills it for for people, you know, who actually want to use it. It's, it's kind of curious. Uh, but I, and I think that that. Um, uh, that quality of that obsession with novelty in, in tech is, 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 I think, a lot of where that um, where where our approach to it, you know, is coming in reaction to because we are working with um, we are working with software as our material and the, the stories, the marketing around software all the time is all is about novelty and progress and about the the new product that erases the old product, you know, and uh, so I think it's just like thinking about ourselves as as uh, new media artists, you know, we want to, um, you know, even in that term, even that term new media is, is sort of like fixated on novelty, but as, uh, um, you know, we, it, it's just important to us to kind of like push back against that a little bit and not, you know, we never want our game to be, our games to be a tech demo or something, right? Uh, uh, in fact, the closest that we came to that, I think was in um, the interlude be between acts two and three, they entertain it. The first version of that that we built was, um, we sort of designed it for the Oculus Rift, you know, for, the, for a, a, an early uh, version of that headset. that was like um, from the Kickstarter or something. It was like the dev kit. Um, but, you know, and so we were able to show it in, a, in like a, a few kind of intimate settings or at shows, um, but, you know, most people couldn't, 
couldn't play it at home with that, with that Oculus. And then eventually it was like, okay, we now the Oculus is a commercial product and we, we could port it to the new Oculus, but oh, but it turns out the guy who runs that company is a fucking fascist, you know, and now we don't want to work on the Oculus, you know? So it was like, well, <laughs> so yeah, I think it's really, um, yeah, there's something about like the new, new tech that that is, is kind of off-putting uh, as an artist, you know? Um, and, and then also just, just, um, just this idea of, of uh, technology as, as a thing that can be haunted, as a thing that has, has ghosts and has, you know, uh, um, it's when, like in a, a lot of horror movies use, um, you know, use the sort of material properties of old technology to, to scare you. you know? I think there's something like inherently sort of like creepy and scary and, and dead about, about old media that, that makes it feel kind of like haunted, you know? Um, in fact, I, I, uh, I'm certain I'm not the first person to make that connection because there's a lot of, you know, it's like this is what people are talking about often when they talk about like a, a sort of hauntological quality, you know, aesthetically. Um, that, I think that's, that's what that quality is like. It's like we're encountering this old media that feels like it has these sort of ghosts that have come along with it. Um, some of whom are the ghosts of possibilities that we abandoned in the past with, with um, some of these technologies when they, we set them aside, you know, like, the uh, like cable TV, for example, is a is a two way medium, right? Cable, you can, we can send signals both ways with cable TV, but we do not because it, it wasn't how that you know it wasn't um, in the interest of the the cable companies to set things up that way, you know. But like if you look at early video art, um, they do interact. They interact with video as a, as a two way medium. They're like I'm sending messages to other people. You know, it's like a communications medium instead of just a sort of broadcast or something. You know, There's, these are just like we don't look at. You know, well, I guess now we're we're doing a two way video right now. But but largely like like this kind of media, these modes of like art making. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of in a lot of ways, we've we've kind of like embraced this sort of broadcast quality of of digital media that. And, and left aside all these other possibilities of how we could have used this text. So it's, it's good to, I think it's good to go back and look and see what we, what we have, you know, other, poss other possible routes we could have taken. Um, another, another place where that came up for me in this project was like um, in the uh, Xanadu section of the game. And, uh, you know, some of that characterization came from, uh, you know, Ted Nelson, you know, this guy's like this um, great uh, writer and, and great sort of like designer and thinker of, of digital media and digital writing. And, um, you know, had all these uh, really, really powerful ideas and designs early on in the 60s for, for the web or, you know, what ideas that now look like the web. Um, and we ended up in a really different place with the internet than, than these, these things that he proposed. But if you go back and look at his uh, early ideas for hypertext, like there are some really exciting things in there that you, it's kind of like, you know, the market just sort of took things in a different direction. Um, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the haunting because I think that's what I wanted to talk about next. And I, yeah. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground with that. Uh, there is something about those lost possibilities of technologies like that moment yeah. where you're like digging through your stuff and you're getting rid of the move and my family and i just moved uh and you find like an old mixtape from high school or something and on the yeah. one hand right like there's something like liberating about that moment it starts in the 70s where like tapes become this thing that you can just pass mm. around and especially in the 80s and of course they can degrade you can play them too much but on the flip side 
you also probably weren't being surveilled in the same way. Like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's yeah. some kind of data being collected on the conversation <laughs> we're having right now. Just, right. you, you know, at the very least at that metadata level. So there's like something yeah. about the way in which those older analog technologies can also like sort of pass under the radar. Yeah. yeah. Um, that yeah. is important, especially in a game that takes place underground so much, in a game mm -hmm. that takes place in haunted areas and churches where people appear and disappear, where there's a, you know, you enter a church and next thing you know, you're in an underground liquor cabinet that poor Conway <laughs> ends up indebted and indentured to. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um... Yeah. So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about Act 5 and about how mm -hmm. it felt to finish it, about yeah. how, I mean, at least this is my read and but it was kind of hopeful. I mean, there's a moment where you're looking at wreckage, but you're also looking at a town that because it's been abandoned by consolidated power, because it's been abandoned by certain kind of corporate interests, like questions about what people are going to do next are being asked again, like alternatives mm -hmm. are being considered. There's even like moments where you can pick between texts about staying or going and there's folks yeah. who you can choose that they want to stay. And there's no sense of what's next, except that there can be something next. And then what's next doesn't have to be just about that power company. It doesn't just have to be about the medical debt that you might have due. Right. So I just I wondered if you talk a little bit about that tonal shift, because I. You know, the end of Act Four, or not right at the end, but you see Conway depart, you yeah. know, and what for me at least is a very melancholy moment in Shannon uh, and him part, but it still manages to find something else in the wreckage. And I just wanted to hear what you thought about that, how you felt about finishing, what, whether or not <laughs> it felt melancholy to leave behind a project that at a certain point had to feel a little bit like an old friend itself. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we were really happy to um, to to be able to move on. You know, for sure. There's like that. You know, it's been yeah, it's been a long road. But um, but yeah, it, I think the 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 ending was was meant to feel kind of hopeful. But it's a, it's a, it is a, I mean helpful for sure. But it is a qualified kind of hope too. It's like you know, if if anything. Um, I kind of wanted to say like, yeah, you know, yeah, it is, it is possible to, it, it, it seems like it's possible for us to move on and, and build something new. Um, but, you know, we, we have the other part of act five is, is like, you know, look, we've, we've tried many times before and it's never worked before, but it is, it is something that we can try again to do now. You know? And that, better. if that's all we have, that's, you know, we can start there. I think. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we can, you know, we can try to, try to, um, fail again, fail better, or we can try to build better. Um, so yeah, but, but that's the hope, uh, such as it is in there. It's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to, um, maintain, uh, hope for, you know, cause consistent, consistently in this moment, but, uh, um, <laughs> you know, when, when we can have it, I think that's, that's kind of what it looks like for me, for me and for us, um, and, but yeah, it, it's, it's, as a conclusion, you know, we're, um, it was a really good thing for us to work on last, I think. Um, it, it's, uh, 
you know, it's, it's, it comes back to a lot of ideas that we set up early in the game, just formally, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a, another thing that happens in act five is, is like we move once again from a very slow character to a very fast character. This is something that is, there's, it sort of happens in between acts um, two and three also, like you, you're playing calmly and he's, he's kind of like limping because he's injured. And then you switch to being able to control Ezra a bit more. Um, and there starts to be this real pull away from, uh, away from sort of Conway and, and towards the, the people that he's traveling with, you know, and, and, uh, and then in, in act five, you switch to this cat and you're like way faster than anything else that, you know, that it's, it's the fastest you can move in the, in the game, you know? So there's something that's supposed to feel kind of freeing about that. You're also not, um, the cat it doesn't really uh, talk in the same way that the other characters talk. You know, the, the cat only ever has one option at a time, uh, and and they're all very um, they're you know nonverbal, so they're 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 expressive and sort of um, uh, formless. You can kind of project onto them or something a lot more, um, and and so that that is is also meant to just feel a bit liberated. I mean, you're you're doing a lot of making a lot of dialogue choices in act five because you're also when people are talking you're you're always choosing everything that they say but you're not sort of like you're a little bit um moving within it with a little more freedom moving around through it with a little more freedom um and and so that was i think really good for us to work on that and then the the epilogue um the last interlude the afterlude um the uh, death of the hired man um, was was also was was very liberating for us uh, to work on for me to write on it was very it felt very free and loose to, to be able to work on that because it doesn't use the the sort of branching structure that the rest of the game uses which which is pretty technically uh, for me was a pretty technically challenging way to write with this branching structure so then you know with that last piece it was just like writing dialogue and it, it just felt um, a more open. although it does have some branching in it but it's not something that the player can con control directly um, but, um, but yeah, it was a nice, it was, a, I think just, just at the level of like us working on the project and, and reflecting on the project as a whole, um, it, it felt like a good way to, to kind of leave it behind and, and move on to whatever's next. Maybe just for a last question about Kentucky Route mm -hmm. Zero specifically, is there anything in the game that you want to draw attention to that you feel like people have either passed over or something you're particularly proud of that you'd love to just like put the spotlight on it? <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, well, you know, we, we had some fun stuff that was like really, really hidden, um, but then we we um, we wanted to surface it a little bit more and we had to do these trophies for the consoles, right? You have to have trophies. So we were like, oh, well, some of the weirdest secrets in the game, we put trophies on them so that people would, so just to draw attention to them so that people would find them. And um, that, was, that was fun because then, you know, we could see that people were getting these trophies and we could see that people were actually seeing these little kind of weird hidden things that we put in there. So um, that was also kind of gratifying for us, even if it, um, if it maybe, uh, at least those, those mysteries were out there for a few years while the game was being worked on. Um, but, but no, other than that, yeah. I mean, that's the paradox of the game itself, right? Like yeah. you've, you've managed to make a really sort of controlled set of spectacles of things mm. that are sort of clouded in mystery in a way. Yeah, right, um, right. So maybe just to sort of wrap up our conversation, okay. we could talk a little bit about you know, what you think the state of the digital games industry as an industry is today. Mm. Um, 
how you feel in it, about it. Um, how are you feeling about sort of work or space for indie developers? Um, do you even identify in that way? Do you see yourself as part of that industry? Do you see yourself as sort of at the heart of it, at the side of it? Um, mm. And just, you know, we're at a moment where, you know, even though we're in a global pandemic, you still have folks crunching, right? Like yeah. almost inevitably, I think it was Jason Schreier was wrote an article earlier this year talking about game delays and how, mm -hmm. you know, the dirty secret of game delays is that actually produces more crunch, not less. Yeah, um, right. You know, and, and I think of the poor folks at like 343 who make the Halo games where the reception uh -huh. recently was so sort of poor that they mm. pushed the game back by about six months or so. And I just can't help but think, oh, they're at home and they're crunching. Like, how do you do oh, that? Yeah. You know, how do you mm -hmm. crunch at home while having a cat, you know, sort of yeah. meowing for you, a kid and yeah, you know, exactly. partners and things like that. So I'm just, I'm wondering how you're feeling about uh, the game industry or how you're feeling about your place in it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there are unionization efforts going on right now with yeah. the Unite, which is exciting. Yeah. So. That's that's exciting. Um, the the uh, the unionization push is exciting to me. You know, I've never worked in I've never worked for like a games company or um, or worked on a, a, a commercial game outside of working with Ben and Tomas and this. So um, I I don't I don't know what it's like to work at one of those big companies or something. Um, but I'm really you know I've, I have read the same stuff that that you've read uh, about that kind of crunch, and I know, I know what what crunch looked like for us as a small studio and yeah it was you know working that much on this really technically and uh, physically sometimes demanding work is pretty um i say physically demanding because you know the like the strain stuff with like this is more of an issue for for tomas for sure with the, the kind of work that he's doing but but yeah it's it's pretty um yeah yeah it's encouraging to see that and then and it's encouraging to me also to see some of the well, I mean, I hope it, I hope that some of these shakeups with um, with some of the you know like executives and stuff that are that are getting um, some attention right now for sexual harassment. Stuff. I hope that's I hope that leads to some good yeah yeah leads to some good changes. Um, but I, I'm not very I don't feel close to that at all. Um, I, I I don't even really know very many people who work in video games. Uh, so you know it's like it's not even really a social scene for me. You know so. Um, yeah, and, and I think it's always kind of felt like that for me, uh, even there, you know, there was, uh, like we were talking about earlier, this, this like indie games um, economy for a moment, um, you know, that was like where there, there were a small group of people who were having these kind of runaway successes and we benefited from that wave um, uh, of attention and, and stuff and, and benefited from the beginning of the kind of opening up of some of the, the distribution distribution channels um but right now what i'm really you know what, what i really feel more connected to and I'm, and I'm really more excited about is like the really small um uh work that's like that you can find on like itch.io and um and that that stuff is you know i feel like I've, I've been watching like twine games and like small flash games and it's just been a continuous presence of, of this kind of really exciting fringy um, weird work that's usually, you know, made by an individual or a really small team uh, that that you still I wouldn't really call indie. Like it doesn't it doesn't indie as a term that maybe that like I guess comes from film and music. Like it it doesn't quite um, uh, it doesn't quite suit that work. Is like more more like fringe and, and more like sort of um, uh, 
I don't know. They're 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 like sort of checked out from the the idea of of like making making games uh, work as a product of a certain scale or something like that. That that works really exciting to me. You know, our our team we we're trying to make a living with this, and we we do have um, you know, we have this cool relationship now with Annapurna, who's like a really been a really great publisher for us. Um, and I yeah, I'm also excited about the the work that's coming out from that kind of you know. Uh, there's some other like pu publishers who are, are you know, putting some putting really good money behind really interesting narrative projects and interesting teams and stuff. So that's really cool. It's it's um, hard to think about that at scale. Uh, and, and it's also like when you're working with, you know, larger budgets, I feel like it makes you vulnerable to uh, to to. Um, you know, you kind of have to make more money back and, and there's like vulnerabilities to, to different kinds of like swings that can happen in the market or in public interest. And like, you, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't ever want to be in the position where like I have to make hits in order to have a, a career, you know, <clears throat> or in order to have a, a practice that I maintain anyway. Like if, if, if uh, we're not able to make kind of um, weird games in, in the, in the style that we want to, we probably would get day jobs again and, and just do do smaller games, you know? Um, so I, I hope that, um, yeah, I don't know. I hope that, that, that spaces like itch will continue to thrive um, and, and that we can just, you know, keep getting, because uh, uh, yeah, itch has been really good, I think, for being able to drive some money to some of these smaller creators and, and make their work sustainable for them, even if it's not um, turning into like a career um, just to make make that doing some of that work sustainable is, is a great great place to start, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it, to it totally yeah. does. And mm -hmm. you're, I mean that question of scale. I mean, you think of yeah. you know the Telltale sort of horror story was they scaled up so quickly and took yeah, so many yeah. licensing fees that they had to right. keep just burning you know, the candle at both end that they just financially imploded because they were burdened their licensing fees. They constantly had people on their back about, okay, what is this mm -hmm. gonna look like? You have all kinds of restrictions because of the licensing. And mm -hmm. so, you know, obviously there, there are dangers there in terms of how yeah. you take on certain kind of investors and things like that. And I, you know, maybe the last question I really have for you, and, and I know, you know, I don't want you to talk about your next project, but maybe we could talk a little bit about how you, see you and Tomas and Ben going into this next project. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see your, you know, are you already talking to Annapurna about support, financial support, material support? Are you sort of just winging it and then going to them later? Uh, do you see yourself releasing the game in pieces again and maybe pieces of it go on itch either in prototype mode or maybe not a prototype but episodically again? Mm -hmm. Is there anything you learned that you know from doing Kentucky Route Zero that you definitely don't want to do again, or that you definitely <laughs> sure. do? You know. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. Can't, not really quite in a place to talk about you know the exactly what we're doing or who we're working with, but um, but we will we'll be soon soon I hope because you know part one of the things that we've learned from working on Kentucky Route Zero that we want to um, move forward with is is that it's like it's it's hard to be so secretive about things all the time. It's like, oh, it's hard to maintain, like we, we have a, this great audience that we really enjoy uh, interacting with. And, uh, you know, um, we have a, a Discord and a Patreon and the, and those are, you know, just really great too. Um, yeah, so we, we really, really like interacting with the audience, but um, with KRZ, we just had all this sort of mystery. We really 
were very, you know, we withheld information until stuff was released. We didn't want to spoil stuff. And then we just, and it was, that was, that served the game. But um, I think we, in approaching a new project, want to try to find a project where we can, we can be a lot more available and open and, and sort of dynamic as we're working on it and, and just, just share what we're doing um, while some progress. So, you know, we've been figuring out how to, how to do that. I don't think we'll do another episodic game per se. It was, it, it was, um, yeah, it had its own financial challenges. I mean, it, there were some things that were really good about it financially, like, um, like being able to sell a $25 game, you know, in order to fund us finishing the game. You know, this wasn't there, this, um, idea of like early access games wasn't quite codified in the way it is now when we started working on CareZ. Uh, so there was like, I don't remember if Minecraft was, um, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, anyway, there were some examples of like living beta kind of games, but there wasn't this like early access as, as a mode of like sharing a game and, and producing it. Um, but that was kind of what we did. We kind of sold, you know, tickets to the whole show and only one episode of it was out. And that, and that, that really helped us to be able to work full-time on the game and finish it. Um, uh, although it wasn't enough to sustain us, you know, for the whole time, we, we had to do some other work to, to make that work. But um, I think we want to avoid though, the, um, the difficult, the sort of creative difficulty that comes with, um, you know, just like selling a product before it's done, it just produces this, um, this like long ongoing like pressure. It was just like really a lot for us to, um, to keep in mind that like people, have, you know, we're working on this thing and it's hard to work on it. It feels like it's going to take forever. And also people have already bought it. So we can't back out now. It's too late. We're, you know, and, and a lot of people, the whole time people were telling us, I know you're never going to finish this game. I know you took my money and you're not going to finish this game. And that's either okay with me or I'm mad at you about it. But it was like, you know, it was, <laughs> we heard that story a lot. And it was like, no, we, you know, we always, we always felt, believed that we were going to finish it. We never doubted that we were going to finish it eventually, but it was, it was, it was a lot to, to, to bear for that whole process while we were working, putting a ton of time into this game. So um, I, so I don't really want to be in that position again. Um, I, I think the three of us would really rather, you know, work on something, sh share pieces of it while we're doing it, and and then share it when it's ready as as a whole project, you know, as a whole game. Um, and and uh, there are a lot of creative things that you know, as I said, we we the three of us really grew through this project and grew into this project as we worked on it. Um, as artists and game developers, I feel like most of what I know about making video games I learned from this process. And um, uh, so there's a lot of, there are a lot of things that, you know, we will apply to the next game. Um, but most of all, I think, you know, just like, again, this, uh, this like understanding of how to take an idea and, you know, a story and sort of like run it through the treadmill and, and come out with a video game on the other end, just like how to think about that and how to, um, I, I'm looking forward to going through that process and not being completely bewildered this time. I think I'll maybe only be like 80% you know, bewildered, but uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. Well, I think, yeah, if you didn't have a little bit of bewilderment, <laughs> right? Like there yeah, wouldn't yeah. be the same sort of energy in the game. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. You know, you need that. Um, mm -hmm. So let's just, you know, call it okay. an interview. Uh, thanks a bunch for taking the time. My pleasure. Jake. Yeah. Uh, here, I'm going to push the pause on okay. recording. So, okay.